disruptive moments arrive in life, it's usually not the time to sit down and try to figure out what to do. You need to get in the habit of being ready to handle the extraordinary before the extraordinary happens to you. And few people understand this better than the men and women in the armed services. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese. And on this episode of If When, we discuss leadership, fortitude, and teamwork in the face of uncertainty with Lieutenant Heather Lucky Penny, a senior fellow at the Mitchell Institute of Aerospace Studies, and Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, Senior Vice President, Chief of Innovation, and Director of Jacobs Global Digital Center of Excellence. In the discussion that follows, I asked Heather about her experiences of flying her unarmed F-16 jet on September 11th in an attempt to bring down United 93 before it could be used to attack Washington, D.C., and how that episode, plus her two tours of duty in Iraq, helped form how she approaches times of disruption. I also asked Bruce to share his journey from being told as a young man whose family was on welfare that he wasn't college material, to retiring from the U.S. Army as a three-star general and the Army's chief information officer, and what he learned about mentorship as a result. I hope you enjoy the tremendous insights that Heather and Bruce share with our listeners. So Heather and Bruce, thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking to both of you. You've had extraordinary careers in your own right, very different in, in many respects, but you also uh, both, you know, of course, served our nation uh, with distinction. So I want to start by just thanking you for your service. Our, our discussion today is really going to be around uh, self-control, self-leadership, resilience, you know, dealing with disruption and uncertainty. And so I think, you know, there's a lot that people who may not have similar experiences that you all have had can still nonetheless, you know, find insights that will help them. So, you know, Heather, let me start with you. You know, you, uh, you became an aviator at a time when there really were not a lot of women taking to the skies as military aviators. And how did that help you help shape who you are and how you approach challenges? Paul, first, thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm really happy to be here. And it's such a privilege to be here uh, with Bruce. And as I know he will say as well, not only has service been uh, the greatest privilege uh, of my life, but one of the greatest adventures. And it made me who I am. So being the first and only woman in my fighter training and in my fighter squadron, frankly, was a challenge. There were times when it was really lonely. There were individuals that did not want me there. But there also were a lot of people who were supportive. And so I think when we're facing adversity like that, one of the most important things that we need to do is be very clear on what our purpose is. Our purpose needs to be bigger than our ego. And that's why, like, if you have an agenda, if this is, like, about you or trying to put a, a, another merit badge on you, you will not be successful when it comes to facing adversity because it's about you. And the challenges you'll face will be too too destructive. It's not going to help you be your higher self and act and live with integrity and perform with excellence if you have that other agenda. 
I just wanted to fly fast fighter jets <laughs> and serve my nation, right? Like that was, I was on fire for that because who wouldn't be? Mm-hmm. And so it, although it wasn't easy, that purpose allowed me to stay focused, not only when guys weren't nice to me, but also, and more importantly, when I failed, mm-hmm. when I didn't perform to the level of, of standards or excellence that was expected of any fighter pilot, and certainly not myself, right? So I didn't mind having to work extra hard. You know, a lot of people complained, well, you know, it's not fair. I have to be 150% better. Well, I didn't care. I wanted to be the best anyways. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that commitment to excellence mm-hmm. was because I was so committed to my purpose. And that's what I, I hope to take, you know, that's that has driven me through the rest of my life, through the rest of my career, is that commitment to purpose, that something is bigger and more important than me. Mm. Oh, that's well said. And that's excellent advice because it's that that does keep you afloat, you know, when times are down and stuff. And when you don't make it, it's just about yourself, right? So it's okay to fail and to get back up and to keep persevering. I think yeah. the other reason why that purpose is really important uh, and that that purpose is bigger than ourselves is it allows us to ultimately become humble, mm-hmm. approachable. and compassionate leaders because if you do have an agenda and you are successful i think that's where we get into arrogance and hubris Mm -hmm. and so there are so many things that are i think are essential about having a purpose that's bigger than ourselves and heather i'd also add uh, from what i've read and just my experience with you here there's a certain authenticity that's associated with your leadership also when you have purpose Well said. Now, Bruce, you know, you served for 34 years in the military uh, and retired as the Army's chief information officer and a three-star general. However, and and you've mentioned this before, and I know this about you because you and I are are friends, and in high school, you were told you weren't college material, which is, it seems really odd, you know, what was the catalyst to help you overcome the doubters? Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, and Paul, you, you and I have talked about this. And so, you know, everyone's got a story and everyone's got a story that I know where they had to overcome adversity multiple times throughout their career. Mm-hmm. But this particular one, so, you know, starts, you know, it's all good stories start with moms. Okay. So my mom actually had me when she was 16 years old uh, mm-hmm. in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, we were both literally raised by my grandparents. Uh, neither one could read or write. My grandfather was a carpenter. My grandmother was a maid. Uh, my grandmother, you know, she could read a little uh, the Bible uh, and such. But but for the most part, the, neither one could uh, could really read or write. So fast forward, I'm now in high school. I'm a senior in high school, and my mom is you know remarried uh, and uh, and divorced. And so there's four of us now. I'm the oldest of seven kids, uh, four kids by seven years. I have a a sister uh, who's seven years uh, younger than me. And so this is at a time, you know, this is literally in March of my senior year when people are like joyous about going to college and the guidance counselor, you know, she calls me in and I remember her name and I remember it like it was yesterday. And she sits me down and says, okay, Crawford, um, I looked at your grades. I looked at your, you know, kind of environment. 
where you're from, et cetera. Uh, and uh, you're not college material. Uh, and so immediately I just said, okay. Uh, because again, one of the things I learned several things from my grandmother and grandfather, but one was you always respected your elders. And this was an elder who had sized me up and said I wasn't college material. All right. And, uh, and, and, the, and the other thing was, you know, we're at a point where we were on welfare, to be quite honest with you. And we were eating soup and sandwiches for dinner. My mom had a job working three to 11. And so I said, okay, this is, she just laid it out for me. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to college. Uh, nobody in my family had ever been to college. Uh, and so I said, I'll get a job. And perhaps maybe my sister, who's seven years younger than me, will be the first in our family, you know, to go to college. And so probably about two, three weeks later, uh, my mechanical drawing teacher, a guy by the name of Dr. Clarence Hill, happened upon me, very casually asked me, Bruce, where are you going to college? So-and-so is going to University of South Carolina and so-and-so is going to this other place. Where are you going? And I just told them, I said, hey, look, just spoke to guidance counselor. Uh, and she said, I'm not college material. And so I'm going to get a job. So my sister could maybe go to college. And he had, he said one thing at that point. Uh, he said, do you mind if I call your mom? Uh, now, 31 years later, uh, when I pinned on three-star general and became the chief information officer in the Army, he flew to D.C. Now, of course, he'd been tracking me and he and I had been talking. He knew, you know, followed my career. But he flew to D.C. to be there in person for the ceremony. And I had never asked him this. I asked him, so what did you tell my mom when you called her? Because my mom was there. You know. He said, I remember calling her and said, listen, uh, Miss Crawford, I've been watching this young man since the eighth grade because I wanted to be an architect growing up. You know, I, I tell people before there was the Internet, there was this thing called World Book Encyclopedia. All <laughs> grandparents had them for some reason. And so, I, you know, World Book Encyclopedia, I wanted to be an architect. And so I took mechanical drawing from him since eighth grade. He says, I called her and said, look, a couple of things. Uh, I've been watching this kid since eighth grade. I watch how the other kids respond to him. He had served in the military. Uh, and uh, he was working on his PhD at a little small historically black college called South Carolina State University in Orangeburg, South Carolina. He said, Ms. Crawford, I, I want to I have him go with me in the evenings. I'd like to try to get him into college. Now, he talked to me about it being an engineer. And then he talked to me about ROTC. And many other miracles had to happen to make me a senior leader in the Army throughout my career. But the key point here being, I took away two valuable lessons from that that I've carried with me. Number one, you never destroy a young person's dreams before they have an opportunity to realize that. The second one, just as important, and maybe more important, is that one determined leader can make a difference. This was a young man at the time with his own young family who could have very easily looked away. And I would have been a statistic, no, no doubt in my mind. But he chose to get involved at the time when you know I needed him most. And so because I went to college, well, each one of my brothers and sisters went to college and then all of their kids went to college and my kids. So you could argue that this one young man at that time made a decision to get involved that changed the entire trajectory of a generation of people. And so I've carried that with me, this whole one determined leader. And I've always strived to be that determined leader in mentoring others and inspiring them to be better than they ever thought they could be. Mm, that's amazing. And it, it's amazing what, you know, one individual who decides to be present to the situation and like they step into the gap, you know, that the impact that they can have and, and they, you know, may not even really know, he may not even realize 
what he meant for your your entire family, your extended family. Right. Now, Heather, you know, uh, and and we'll talk about uh, you know I'll, we're going to talk about September 11th in just a little bit, and you know, obviously that's uh, in your career, that's a uh, that's something you're obviously very well known for. But you also served two tours of duty in Iraq. And uh, can you speak to that experience, you know, what it taught you about fostering teamwork and a culture of mutual accountability? Well, first, let me say that everyone's experience in Iraq uh, or Afghanistan were dramatically different. Uh, So many of us who served, those were formative experiences in our lives. Mm -hmm. But here's one thing that I think ties all of us together is that we don't mind doing hard things. And as a matter of fact, I believe that people need that hard thing to go do to find meaning in their life and to establish self-esteem and prove to themselves Mm -hmm. that they can. But we don't like to do practice breedling. You know, we talk about practice bleeding in the Air Force, uh, you know, with the meaningless uh, training or and so forth, administrivia that sucks the life and your motivation. That's not what I taught, what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It's really, it does get back to that purpose. And people Mm -hmm. don't mind sacrifices and they don't mind the long hours uh, if what they're doing has meaning, if it's going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is something that leaders can take away is that they don't necessarily need to make things super easy. Although, you know, if you're looking for retention over the long term, you do need to understand how to balance the demands that you're making for your individuals. They need to be able to balance and, and actually be present for their families and so forth. But when we're asking them to do something hard, We need to articulate why it matters. We need to give them meaning behind what we're asking them to do. And then you would be surprised, you're just shocked at what people are willing to do and how excellent they perform because Mm -hmm. people thrive on doing hard things. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's really interesting about that is when you create teams to go do that, that then increases trust increases commitment to the organization, increases morale and esprit de corps. And so there are so many good things that come out of being able to articulate a mission and a meaningful purpose for our teams. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. It, it makes me think I, I actually, uh, I saw on LinkedIn just the other day, I guess Michael Dell had posted something, made me think about this, uh, he posted this like kind of re- rather lengthy quote from Theodore Roosevelt about the man in the arena. Yeah. And yes. it basically is that difference between the critics on the sideline and the prognosticators and all that and say what you want, but the man in the arena is the one who's given his blood, sweat and tears. So he's making things happen. So it's- and, and, and the willingness I'd, I'd add the man and woman mm-hmm. uh, in the arena, uh, mm-hmm that's the person that's willing to take the risk, all right? Uh, They've seen a problem and they've stepped forward to take the risk to rectify the problem. You've got to also acknowledge that. It's very easy to criticize if if you're not in the arena. 
mm-hmm. if you're not the person that's accepting the risk. If you're not, in this particular case, the person who has others who are depending, you know, on you to to stay alive and and, and or be successful. So there's a little bit of that also. Yeah, it's that that willingness to be present in in the moment. So. Yeah. Now, Bruce, now let me ask you, you know, obviously 34 years in the, in the army and, and you retired as a, a three-star general. Uh, I'm assuming there were a myriad of commands and directions that you had to give in your role. What are some of the hardest decisions you've had to make as a military commander? Yeah, I, I'd say virtually every one of them had to do with, with people. Mm-hmm. Either their, their life or their uh, or their livelihood, and the, those are you know given the fact that my passion is really inspiring people to be better than they ever thought they could be for the for the reasons that I talked about earlier, and that stays with me mm-hmm. even here uh, in industry and in commercial America. I'd say virtually every hard decision had to do with people. Looking back, I'd say when something did go wrong and it wasn't necessarily a decision but it was reflecting on a decision Mm -hmm. it was did i prepare them did i do everything within my power uh, Mm -hmm. to prepare them to create an environment where they felt competent you know and confident in Mm -hmm. and trusted uh, what they were seeing did i do everything that i could when something did go wrong to prepare them and so it's everything from as a second lieutenant, you know, as, as a young officer, having to be the first one to call a family and tell them that we've lost a service member. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't a decision, but it's something very difficult that, that, I, that I had to do. Losing a soldier in my 700 man and woman group of paratroopers in the 82nd Airborne Division in Ramadi. And thinking back, although not a decision, reflecting on what could I have done differently as the battalion commander to prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say every hard decision that I've ever had to make had to Mm -hmm. do with people. It wasn't about strategy. It wasn't about resourcing. It had to do with people. And I suspect that if you polled a group of leaders, almost all of them, as they reflect on it, you know, I wouldn't say they come to the same exact conclusion, but they come to very similar uh, conclusions. Mm. You know, these are a lot of what you've articulated. They're they're not things that you necessarily plan for. I mean, it was like these are things you're having to react to. Mm-hmm. How did you prepare for those tough moments? And you know, what did it teach you about contending with you know uncertainty or, or fluid environments? Yeah, I think Heather mentioned it earlier is first and foremost, awareness and, and understanding a couple things, one of which that leading is a privilege that helps you prepare. The other piece that's more important is it's never it can never be about you mm-hmm. as the leader when you have something, you know, something very difficult to, to prepare for. I think you've got to do other things and back to, you know, to your question about you know, preparing for tough moments. Mm-hmm. You've got to be honest with yourself about your own individual strengths and weaknesses. What am I good at and what am I not good at? And then you got to surround yourself with people who think differently than you do and who are good at the things, again, for the good of the organization that you are not. 
I, I used to run the uh, strategic leader development program for the Army back in, I think it was 2010. And one of the cool things, as an example, we got to do is we got to go visit CEOs of companies. Mm-hmm. And I never wrote this down, but to this idea of uh, surrounding yourself with people who think differently and maybe smarter than you all, I heard the CEO of McDonald's in a very small room uh, say that uh, if you always find yourself having to be the smartest guy in the room, then you're probably hiring the wrong people, mm-hmm. all right, on your on your team. Mm-hmm. And so this idea, you know, the point being that one of the things that you've got to do to prepare for tough moments is you've got to be honest with respect to what you know and what you don't know, and you've got to fill that void with people who do know and be comfortable in your own skin there. I think the other thing I've, I've mentioned is you've got to be authentic. Mm-hmm. And it's not something you can just go do. I mean, it's got to, it, 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 you know, being an authentic leader is not just something you could read about and then, then just go do it. It's got to be a part of who you are mm-hmm. uh, and, and what you stand for. The last thing I'd say is uh, one of the last things here is trust. We've talked about trust. Trust is the bedrock. It, it's the one big thing about the one big thing, you know, the ability to trust each other. I, I think being authentic is kind of one of those pillars that leads to, to building trust. And then the last thing I'd say is you've got to, when you're dealing with tough moments, you've got to prepare in such a manner that you've made practice harder than the game, mm-hmm. right? Meaning whether it's leveraging technology to put people in pressure situations. I know Heather, in her past life, they did that like nobody's business. And a lot of the rest of, I'd say, both corporate America and the military modeling, you know, them themselves after ability to leverage technology like fighter pilots did to put them in tough, challenging situations early on. But that, mm-hmm. that last piece would really be about make practice harder than the game and put people in challenging situations before they have to actually go and do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, excellent advice. Now, Heather, like I mentioned earlier, you know, besides your, your tours in Iraq, you know, you, of course, are known for taking to the air in an unarmed fighter jet uh, on September 11th under orders to bring down United 93 before it could reach Washington, D.C. Can you speak to what that experience as well as the tours in Iraq, but that experience, you know, what, what it taught you about finding the courage to act, you know, in a highly stressful situation. Well, Paul, I've already spoken, which I think is probably the most important element is having that purpose that's greater than ourselves and Mm -hmm. having clarity about what that purpose is. You know, there's a difference between uncertainty and, or, or trying to seek certainty, which is predictable outcomes and having clarity. We need to have clarity in what our purpose is, and we need to be committed to that. It has to be so much bigger than ourselves. But I think one thing that's really important as I've you know, spent time reflecting on September 11th over the past 20 years is that the kind of courage that I think we saw that day, and not just in the passengers of Flight 93, but the first responders and the people who helped each other in the moments before the tower fell, and how people just took care of each self on that day. Mm-hmm. We saw examples of kind of everyday courage. Mm-hmm. And I've come to think of courage like a muscle. You know, if we don't exercise it on a daily basis, when the moment comes, we, it might be too daunting for us to lift. 
we might not have the internal strength and integrity to rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what that means is in our daily lives, when it comes to being brave, overcoming our fears, putting those fears to the side so that we do the right thing, overcoming our insecurities, our self-doubt, that, that we practice that kind of bravery and we practice service on a daily basis in the small ways, in the small things, because only then when our moment comes, will be, will we be ready? Hmm. Now this next question, Heather, you know, you, it kind of, I, I think it might be kind of the tactical application for what you were just sharing in terms of like, particularly, you know, finding that, that larger purpose, that purpose that's bigger than yourself, right? Like that seems to be like the, the fundamental core of how you respond to whatever environment you're in, you know, and whether there's, clarity and certainty or not but from a technical level let me ask you you know you're you're a a senior fellow at the mitchell institute for aerospace studies uh, as a defense policy expert so are there certain decision-making ideologies that you studied or encountered that you feel are particularly relevant for innovators creators and disruptors I wouldn't call it an ideology, but I think it's a broader approach to how we ask the questions and ask the right questions. When we're looking to innovate, create, or disrupt, we're fundamentally trying to progress. We're trying to solve a problem or do something better. And asking the questions about understanding what we think is insufficient, what we think is broken, and having clarity on what our desired outcome actually is. So beginning to understand not only that framework, asking the right questions and being able to zero in on where we think the gaps are is a crucial piece of that. But I think it's also key for leaders to try to not only be experts in their field, but also be very broad intellectually. Studies on creative genius have shown over time that oftentimes what makes people innovative, creative, or disruptive in a, in a productive and progressive manner is that they're able to apply cross-disciplinary approaches or thought processes to a problem. So we're not building a better mousetrap or just thinking harder, but in the same way. We're actually looking at the problem from a different perspective. We're asking different questions. We're taking different approaches to solve that problem. And I think this gets a lot back to what Bruce had said earlier about building a diverse team. Mm -hmm. As a leader, you're not going to be able to solve those hard problems if everyone has the same mentality and experience as you. So Mm -hmm. diversity isn't only about the external markers of gender and color and and so forth. Diversity also really is about our experience, our training, our expertise, our education, and our life experience. And when we build those diverse teams and when we empower those teams to speak up, to share their perspectives, mm-hmm. that's when we can begin to create those that, that creative, innovative solution. Well, that's interesting. So the idea, I mean, it's it's almost like co-opted genius, right? Like the diversity of thought, having a do- diverse team, 
people of like different worldviews gives you that, in a sense, co-opted genius that allows you to have that maybe plasticity of thought so that you can approach a problem from any number of different uh, angles, you know, and then you can uh, create a solution from that. So exactly. now Bruce kind of piggybacking off of that, you know, you, in your career, you've had the opportunity to serve and network with a, a variety of great leaders. And, you know, what are some of the best leadership lessons you've picked up in the spirit of that diversity of thought, maybe other generals or, or non-generals or even non-officers or whatnot, you know, who've, who've had the kind of diverse mindset, what lessons have you picked up and how might others apply those as they lead their own teams? Yeah, I, I think, uh, and first and foremost, the best lessons that I've learned, some of them actually came from people who didn't ascend to, you know, be leaders in corporate America or, or, or leaders, you know, in, in the military. So one of the first lessons I learned is you can learn from everyone, from your peer group, et cetera, and put yourself in a position to do that. So that, that's one. The other one has more to do with mental health. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of light you know, on that now. It's been illuminated, the importance of it just coming out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I tell young people this, that, you know, so everyone wants to be very successful. You want to be the very best at what you do. You want to be CEO of the company tomorrow. But understand something. On that journey, leading can be very lonely. Regardless of whether you're leading a, a platoon as a second lieutenant or you're leading a team, you know, as a program manager. So acknowledge that it, it can be a very lonely business and seek partnerships and relationships that not just give you an outlet, but provide you with someone who's going to give you honest feedback on kind of your, your, your current state. Uh, no one can, you know, progress on this journey alone. So that's kind of the second thing. The third thing one of the, it's amazing to me when I think back on, because uh, I was reflecting this question, and every really good super leader that, that I, I respect, didn't matter what level, they were also good teachers. You know, it, it, back to it wasn't about them and do as I say. They invested a lot of time in people. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like they were very passionate about teaching the craft, whatever it happened to the craft you know, of the day, you know, mm-hmm. happen to be. And then the last thing on leadership, I'd say there's no substitute in my mind for inspired leadership, not just directed, you know, mm-hmm. leadership, but for the ability to inspire a team, to inspire others, back to my point earlier, to be better than they ever thought they can be. Mm-hmm. Among the most satisfying things, and I already leave the Army, I remember sitting, talking to the Secretary of the Army, he's, all right, Bruce, you're leaving tomorrow and what are you most proud of and you know is it the cloud migration is it you know any transformational thing or a tactical communications thing anything you did personally i said to him it's the generals and the senior civilians that we leave behind i think we invested in the right people and uh being the father of a soldier now and you know, uh, with two grandkids, the thing that I'm most proud of as I look back is that we invested in the right people. And it's the legacy of generals and senior civilians that we leave behind. Mm-hmm. And so the best leaders that I've seen that were, I thought, the most effective and left an enduring impact, not just a near-term impact, 
but enduring legacy were mm -hmm. those that had those particular traits, one of which is being a good teacher and investing in the legacy. Oh, that's awesome. And, and so what I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot of getting outside of yourself, focusing on something bigger than yourself, investing in other people, being humble enough to hear a diversity of opinions that may even, you know, shocker, not agree with your own, really being able to lean on other people and see that, you know, it's being able to work as a team, you know, as opposed to trying to go it alone, you know, is a key to success. So, well, Heather and Bruce, I want to thank you both so much for being with me today and talking about this. I want to also thank you both so much for your service to our country. It's amazing what you both have been through and what you've done for our country. So I want to thank you both for that and for sharing your insights uh, with our listeners today. Thank you, Paul. This has been great. No, thank you, Paul. This has been unbelievable. Thank you.